Let's take out our Bibles and let's find Romans chapter 8 together, please, once again. You know, I, that is probably my favorite song. And um, Natalie knew that. And so she made me a gift a number of years ago. And there's a, fra- a frame, it's hanging in my office, actually. There's two of them. On the bottom is my ordination certificate when I was ordained a number of years ago now in Rockford. And then above it is a frame. Both of these frames now have the words of that song, okay? All I have is Christ on the sides, like on the borders of it. Should have brought it in to see it, but I didn't know I was going to talk about it. (laughs) The bottom frame holds my uh, uh, doctrinal statement. The top frame, or uh, uh, ordination statement, And then the top frame, though, is a copy of the police report uh, in which I was named as an off-duty officer and started a big brawl at a a local, whoops, started a big brawl at a local bar where cops were known to hang out, and I hung out quite frankly, got into a lot of trouble, made the newspaper, humiliated my family. It ended up in uh, a, uh, me resigning from the department and going back to school and uh, from there. But shortly after, called me with a specific, a special, and an effectual calling he doesn't give to everyone else. That he only gives to those he plans to save. As a matter of fact, my brother, and what led up to that obviously was my sin and rebellion against God, having grown up in a Christian family, heard the gospel as a kid, you know, etc., 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 and then went in the military and just go into the world and loved it, loved it and embraced it. My older brother grew up in the same family, taught the same gospel, went to the same church, goes off into the world, embraces the world, loves the world, and ended up dying about 10 years ago. Those of you who are here remember that when I had to go back to my brother's funeral. He drank himself literally to death. He, he, he basically lost his job, first of all, then he, or his family, then his job, everything. Shuts himself off in his house, literally just walls himself in his house for month upon month upon month and just drinks himself until he, they shut off all his power, they shut off all his water, he's not paying his bills. Until one day, I think really if we retrace a little bit of what happened, he slipped in his bathroom, I believe on his own feces. He cracked his, broke his ribs on his tub, and within a day died from a punctured lung. Now, why did I believe in Jesus 
and embrace the gospel after pursuing a very, probably very similar story to what was going to be with my brother. What made me say, I believe in Jesus. I turn from my sin, I believe in Jesus, and not my brother. I know, maybe it's that I just had better decision-making skills than my brother. Maybe I was more intelligent than my brother. Or maybe, you know, the Sunday school teachers were a little more persuasive with me. I mean, maybe somebody could just argue all the facts to me in such a way that I would believe and my brother would not. Friends, on the authority of Scripture and, frankly, common sense, I reject any of those assumptions about why I believe and my brother didn't. I believe because of the sovereign grace and electing love that was set on me from before the foundation of the world. And at that time, I was predestined to, an, to adoption as son, a son or child of God. And at the right time, God called me with a specific, a special, and an effective call that brought with it change of heart, repentance, faith, and I believed and I was justified and I'll be glorified one day. I attribute my salvation not to my decision or to some act of my will. Whenever I exerted my will, it always went against God. That was my pattern my whole life. My will, my free will, like everyone else's free will, is what goes against God. That's our problem, you see. I owe my salvation to the sovereign grace and eternal will of God, and it's anchored in it to this very day. It's why I can know with certainty and confidence that one day I'll be glorified because it's according to the sovereign grace and will of God. Now, what I just shared with you about this sovereign will of God and this is electing love and predestining love isn't necessarily what I evangelize with. When I evangelize, I can talk about my story and then I share the good news of Jesus. I share about salvation in Christ. If you will turn from your sin, you'll believe. It's absolutely true. There's nothing untrue about it. You can say it to any single person ever that you'll ever encounter in the world. If you will turn from your sin and you will trust in Christ, He will save you. You'll be forgiven. But the Apostle Paul goes behind the scenes into why or why not that person essentially will believe. And he does it for believers so that you can be more enthralled, shall we say, 
more enthralled in the glory of God and showing you grace and saving even you and so that you would never become pompous against those who are not saved. Why would you ever become proud of your salvation when you know it wasn't of you in any part of it? And to this day, it's not of you and it never will be of you. Any aspect of your salvation We can never become proud in it. Our text for this week and then next is continuing where Graham was, Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. The reason I'm introing into that is because we're going to talk about some of these things that at first are hard for Christians to see or understand or come to grips with. But they are nonetheless true and biblical, and right, and good, and worship-inspiring, and awesome in every grand sense of that word awesome. Let's read verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's just pause now and ask God's blessing on these verses. Father, we need your help as always. We need your spirit as always to see and believe and revel in what you've revealed, to accept and comprehend and delight in what you've revealed. So will you help us, not for my sake, but for the sake of your people. In the glory of your name, gift me now to teach and preach as I ought, that I would speak as the oracles of God. I ask this in the name of Jesus now. Amen. This week and next week, we are going to deal with three important terms in these verses that I think every Christian should be able to define and define rightly, okay? Three terms that every Christian should have to define and define rightly. They are the terms called, that shows up three times. You're called if you're a Christian. That's verse 28 and then twice in verse 30. The word called, the word foreknowledge, That is God's foreknowledge, verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We need to know what that means. We're going to look at that one next week along with its brother term, predestined. Predestined, that also shows up there in verse 29 and in verse 30. So called, foreknew, predestined. 
There are also other important terms here like justified and glorified in verse 30, but we've looked at those a lot. We know that justification is God's declaration of righteousness on one who believes, forgiven of all their sins, given righteousness they need to get into heaven because they can't earn their own righteousness, right? So God gives it to those who believe in Jesus. And then glorified, we've been talking about that. That's the glory that we have awaiting us at the last day when we see Christ and become like Him. But calling, foreknowledge, predestination. These are important to think about and really to dissect this paragraph from verses 28 to 30 because of where he's going in verse 31. Let me show you this. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 through the end of this chapter is the crescendo of the whole chapter. Really the crescendo of all of chapters 1 through this point. He's building into this crescendo where he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, it's these truths and understanding calling, foreknowledge, predestination, justification, glorification. Understanding these terms gets you to the point where you're like, wow, what words can I even say in response to these things other than this, if God's for me, who can be against me? That's how safe, that's how secure I am. That's how confident in the glory I can be, never separated from the love of Christ or the love of God in Christ Jesus. So he's going to end with no separation. But we need to understand the way these things fit together so that you could explain to somebody that what they call the golden chain of salvation. Have you ever heard that term? The golden chain of salvation in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. These are like links in the chain. Those whom he predestined, he also called. They link those together. Those he called, he also justified. Another link in that chain. Those he justified, he also glorified this unbreakable golden chain of salvation and how these things fit together for your good and the glory of God all in Jesus Christ, okay? Now, Graham did an excellent job of preaching through verse 28 last week. Let me show you this. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Listen to this now. For those who are called according to His purpose. For whom does all things work together for good for everybody is this just a pithy statement for a coffee mug gift you're going to give to somebody don't worry all things are going to work together for good is that what paul is talking about no all things work together for good for a particular group of people and he defines them in the two ways that graham brought out last week those who love god and just so they don't get too big for their britches and thinking how their love for God is what actually got them into this or that their, God, their love for God was what originated in them because as John made it very clear in 1 John, we love God because He first loved us in this kind of way. 
so they don't get too big for their britches. He says, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to His, that is God's purpose. That group of people, the ones who are called according to His, they're called by God according to His purpose. And he continues that, verse 30, of course, among the, on those He predestined, and we'll get to that next week, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified. Now, what is this call that we have received? What does He mean by this calling? And what is this purpose to which we are called? Well, let me show you the purpose first. The purpose for which we are called is explained in verse 29. So you should look down at verse 29 now. The called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The purpose for which he called the people of God is to be conformed to the image of His Son. There's a present aspect to that and a future aspect to it, right? The present aspect is what we always talk about as Christians as we're walking through this life and things are happening in our lives, good and bad, and we say, all things work together for good so that I can become more like Jesus. True or false? Are Christians supposed to be like Jesus? Yeah, it's true, right? We're Christ-like, and God is using the all things for that good and glorious purpose to make Christians more and more like Christ, I think especially, or maybe we should say uniquely in times of suffering because we follow the one who suffered for us, and now we are called to, we suffer through this life to become more like our suffering Savior, right? So we talked about that. But then the future aspect of that good that all things work together for, that conformity to Christ, that is when we're made just like Him. And how is He now? He has been risen from the dead. He has been exalted into heaven. He is in His glorified human body. As He is, we will be. You see, as He is now, we will be. When that happens, when He raises us from the dead and glorifies us with His power, we're going to be glorified with Jesus. We're going to have undying bodies and undecaying bodies. We are going to have bodies who don't falter or fail. They have within them no propensity to sin or break God's law, we're glorified, and that is a status we will have forever and ever. Christ has it now, and we too one day will have it. That's God's purpose in calling you. It was more than just saving you from hell. God's purpose was more, much grander than saving you from hell. He wanted to make you like Jesus Christ so that Christ could be the firstborn among many brethren. Remember, we're children of God. Didn't the Spirit tell us that? Or doesn't God, Paul tell us that the Spirit tells us that? Up in verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
We're brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we too will bear his image increasingly in this day and age, in our fallenness and in our sinfulness and in our imperfection. And then one day completely when his purpose for us is fulfilled and he glorifies us, just as it says at the end of verse 30. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's his purpose. That's what you have been called to. Hear this now, Christian, okay? Hear this. If you are a child of God and you know it, so if you know it because the spirits testify with your spirit, you're a child of God, you're believing in Jesus, you love God, you know it, hear this then. Then at a point in time in your life, God called you to salvation in Jesus Christ with a specific and special and effective calling that He does not give to everyone. If you are a child of God and you know it, then at a point in time in your life, God called you according to His purpose to one day glorify you that He called you to salvation in Christ Jesus with a specific and special and effectual call, others did not and will not receive. This is why back in chapter 1, as a matter of fact, when Paul writes to Christians, he actually uses this term called as an identifier of who they are. So he says in verse Five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, Roman church, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Special calling. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and, listen, called to be saints. You see that there? He's not writing to everyone in Rome. This wasn't a letter written to Caesar and to the whole Roman population. No, this is a letter written to those who are loved by God uniquely and who are called to belong to Jesus Christ and who are called to be saints. And that's not everyone. You know, there is what we would call a general call of the gospel. Every time you share the gospel with somebody, it could be a coworker, friend, relative, you're amiss if you don't call them to salvation. So you're not quite doing it right. God could still use it because we bumble and stumble in our evangelism, but you're not quite doing it right if you don't get to the point where you say, now, here were the facts of the gospel and who Jesus is. Here are the facts of your sinfulness and the salvation that can be found in Jesus. Now, you must turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, and if you do, you will be saved. That's a call. You can say it many different ways, but you're pleading with people, believe this, trust in Him now. Turn away from your false religion. Turn away from your atheism. 
Turn away from your skepticism and doubts. Turn away from your self-righteous works of I'm going to be really good and then maybe one day God will accept me. Turn away from all of that. Confess your sin to God. Admit your helplessness and believe in Jesus. That's the general call of the gospel. But that's different than the calling that Paul's describing here in two ways. First, that calling that we give to everybody through the gospel is from us. The calling Paul's talking about comes from whom? From God. Now, yes, he uses the gospel. He uses our presentation of the gospel and even our human call then to call this person to salvation. That's true. But this is a unique call that comes from God. And this call, you need to catch this. You need to see it on Scripture's page, okay? So you don't think I'm making this up. This calling that comes from God to be conformed to the image of His Son, the calling to salvation that comes from God, works 100% of the time. It always results in salvation. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 30 again. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Now, notice a few grammatical things here that are important. Those ones, right, whom he predestined, meaning he didn't predestine everybody, but the ones he did, those ones, now he called. Now what happens with those ones he called? Look at this. Every single one of those ones he called, those ones he also justified. And 100% of those ones he justifies, those ones are glorified. In other words, this calling, whatever it is and whatever it entails and however it happens, always results in salvation because the only people who are saved are justified people. And how are they justified? Paul already described that. They believed in Jesus. Very simply, they trusted in Him. And when they trusted in Him, they were justified, and now they have the hope of eternal glory. That happens to every single one of these people, those ones, who receive this call. When you share the gospel with people, do they always believe and are justified? Does that happen? No. There's a special calling that results in salvation. If you believe that it's everybody is called to salvation this way, then you have to be logically consistent and say, everybody then gets saved. Because everyone who receives this call, they're justified. And everybody who is justified is glorified. So if you want to broaden this call from God for salvation out to the world, then you have to be consistent and become what they call a universalist these are not that you would find these people there'd be no problem for you to go find these people who believe that in the end everyone gets saved rob bell wrote a book about it in the end love wins that's his book god's love means he wants everybody to be saved so everybody's going to be saved there can be no eternal punishment love wins in the end plenty of people that believe these things 
But if you want to be consistent with what the Bible says, regardless of what any preconceived notions you had or things you thought or things you heard, if you just want to look down at the passage and the grammar of the passage, it demands you come to this conclusion. There are a group of people called those ones. And God calls those ones. And it works because they believe and are justified. And those ones will always be glorified. This is a special calling that you received. It's why you believed and some of your loved ones didn't. It's why you believed and some of your friends didn't. It's an effectual calling. It works because the people who receive it obviously believe and we know they believe because they're justified. So whatever God does in this calling, whatever's transpiring between God and the human being in that moment when he issues this call to salvation, this call to belong to Jesus Christ, this call to be conformed to the image of his son, this call to be saints, whatever's transpiring between God and that person, whatever's going on in their hearts and minds, it results in them believing in Jesus because when they receive this calling, it works. This is why some theologians call it, listen to the term, effectual calling. Why do we say effectual? Because it, it was effective. There are lots of general calls. I mean, Jesus himself said it. Many are called with a general call, but few are chosen. Now, one passage of Scripture that helps us understand this at an even better detail is John chapter 6. So you can turn to John chapter 6. I think I've got them on the screen as well. If you don't want to join us there, you can look at the screen. I think you'll get the main point. John chapter 6 is a very important chapter. It is actually probably one of the more important chapters in John's whole gospel. It is 71 verses long. Can you believe that? I'm not going to read that now, so don't worry. I have selected verses here, but let me give you the context of this. One of Jesus' most well-known miracles was that of feeding what you'll see even in the text. If you have our, the Bible open, you'd see at the beginning of John chapter 6, over verse 1, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Actually, scholars tell us it was probably more in the range of 10 to 15, maybe even 20,000 because they were just counting uh, men at that time. I know, ladies, uh, don't, but don't get all excited. But they were just counting men. There are 5,000 of them, but they would have had wives and children and, and others that were there. And so we're probably at 10 to 15,000 people gathered here, needed to eat. They didn't have anywhere to eat. and Jesus didn't want to send them away. Disciples said, all we've got is... Uh, what, two loaves of, two loaves of bread and, and five small fish. How are we going to feed all these people, Jesus says. Watch this. And so he multiplies the bread and the fish. Can you imagine this? So that there was so much for these people to eat. They were all satisfied, the text tells us. And then he commanded the disciples, now go around and collect up the leftovers so that none's wasted. That's how much he did from two 
loaves of bread and five fish. Now, that's not possible, right? Of course not. It's only possible if you're the son of God. So on one level, you're supposed to read that and you're supposed to say, all right, and all four Gospels record this event, by the way. It's one of the, one of the, the, the events of Jesus' life that all four said this has got to be in there for people to know Jesus is. On the one hand, we just say that shows Jesus' power. He must be the Son of God. And by the way, if you're questioning Scripture or Jesus to any degree, go through all four Gospels, read about every single miraculous event that's given in detail and then some of the others that are just there saying like he did this and he healed hundreds of people and all this. Ask yourself, one, ask yourself this question. If only one of those were true, even one of those were absolutely true, wouldn't this Jesus be someone to pay attention to? And maybe to investigate a little bit about who he is? Well, this account is so important that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all writing for different purposes about Jesus' life, all of them recording details of Jesus' life, some of them different than others, but they record this one. All four of them show this one. That's how important it is to establishing who Jesus is. Well, interestingly, though, John's gospel is the only gospel that explains why he did it. Jesus, throughout this text, teaches, and you can look at the heading above verse 22. They all keep coming. They hear about this, so now they're all flooding to Jesus. He'll feed us. We'll go to this Jesus. He'll provide us food for free. We don't even have to pay or tip the waiters. It's quite a deal. So they all find Jesus, and they're gathering around him. And he says, you know, essentially, you're coming to me because you know I'll give you food. But I'm really here to offer you a food that is far greater than these loaves and fishes that I gave you. A food for your soul that lasts not just in another day of living, but in eternal life. And then he says this. This was all about this. I am the bread of life. You must partake of me by faith. So my life enters into your soul and gives you eternal life. You must feed on me by faith. He even gets graphic with it to get their attention. You must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood in order to have this kind of eternal life, this true eternal life that I am offering to you. But the amazing thing is, is that people began grumbling against this teaching. They didn't accept it. They'd accept the food that he could provide just by this miraculous event, but they would not accept his teaching. They rejected it. If you look at verse 44 or verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one, that's a very definitive term, like there's not an exception. If you scour the earth, you will not find one who can come to Jesus in faith 
and believe, even if they were to eat the food he miraculously provided for them. A lot of people think if you can provide enough evidence for Jesus, they'll believe in him. No. It's not true. Even though they had experienced this or heard about it, knew and believed that part was true, that he fed all these people, they could not, they would not come to him. They grumbled against his teaching as being the bread of life. How do you explain this? Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one has the ability to do it. We are all by nature totally incapable of coming to Jesus Christ in a saving way, with a saving faith, even if he were to appear before us right now, demonstrate who he was, that without this drawing work of the Father, there would be people even in this room who would just say, I don't believe in it, I can't trust him, I can't, I'm not putting my faith in this man. This word draws here, put it back up on the screen, will you? 644, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I would argue that that is a similar way of what Paul describes as the calling of God. God calls or draws the person. Listen to a definition of this. I had meant to put it on the screen, but I didn't, so you'll have to just listen to it. The word draws means to move an object from one area to another in a pulling motion. Draw with the implication, listen, that the object being moved is incapable of propelling itself or in the case of persons is unwilling to do so voluntarily. In either case, with implication of exertion on the part of the mover. It'd be like this. If I was standing over here and I said, hey, pulpit, I like it better over here. I want you to come over here now and position yourself right in front of me. And I just stood there and waited. No, come on, pulpit. I'm over here. How long would we wait for this pulpit to get over to me? The pulpit is incapable of moving itself to the object that's calling it unless the object that's calling it moves it over there. That's the word. People can hear the gospel. They can hear apologetics. They can hear reasons for the resurrection. They can see the change in people's lives. People could watch Jesus call a dead man out of the tomb and still reject him because spiritually they're unable to come to Christ in a saving way unless the Father draws them or the Father calls them to himself unless the, the mover being God exerts his power on the thing he wants moved to Christ. Which means that when God calls us friends, he works in us in such a way, however that is, that it results in us believing. It's not God's faith he gives to us. It's not like he implants faith in the believer. It's the result of his moving, his drawing, his calling. That's why you believed because the Father drew you, because God 
called you, and the result was that you believed. So you had no idea what was going on in that in your heart and mind as God was working in you the power you needed to come to Christ. Even though maybe for many of you, just like me, you had heard the gospel thousands of times in your life and never truly believed for salvation. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Well, who does the Father draw? Well, Jesus taught that. John 36 and 30, John 6 verses 36 to 37, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Follow the progression here. Can you come to Christ unless the Father draws you? Answer, no, according to Jesus. Well, who does the Father draw? All that the Father gives me will come to me. They wouldn't come to me unless he drew him, but because he draws them, They'll come to me. Who is it? All the ones the Father has given to me. And then we have the promise of whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So how do you know you're one of this number? How do you know the Father has given you the Son? Have you come to Christ? Well, yes, I have. Then congratulations. That's how you know. That's it. That's all. I've come to Christ. How did that happen? Why are all my friends rejecting Jesus and I believe in him? Why is my family rejecting Jesus and I believe him? Why is my spouse rejecting Jesus and I believe him? I mean, I've explained to him the gospel. How can't he see this? Well, don't you see? He can't come unless a father draws them or calls them. And you were one he called. This calling from God then is by His Spirit. John chapter 6, verses 63 to 64, it says, it is the Spirit who gives life. Because this is at the, the, really the conclusion of this discussion. All His disciples are walking away at this point. They, they said, this is a hard saying. Maybe somebody in here is like this. This is a hard saying. Who can accept this? He's telling us we can't come to him. He's telling us he gives life. He's telling us I'm incapable. I mean, I'm so sinful that I cannot and will not come to him for salvation. Who can really get this? I don't know if I like this. And believe me, if that's you, there are many, many people that I've encountered just like that. They all walked away from him. Jesus said it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Didn't Paul say that in Romans 8? I mean, we studied it pretty clearly there in Romans 8. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot submit to God's law. Indeed, they will not. Those who do not have the Spirit cannot come to Christ because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Those who do not have the Spirit will not come unless the Father draws. How does He draw them? He's telling us right here. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew who, uh, from the beginning though, uh, who those were who did not believe and who it was who be- would betray Him. And He says... Do I have the next verse up there? And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. They need the Spirit. So how does this work? At a point in time in your life, you're going about your sinful way, enjoying the things of this world, completely happy to be 
opposed to God, and God, through the gospel now, calls you with a specific, special, and effective calling, because all of a sudden you felt the conviction of your sin, which Jesus was very clear, said, comes from the Spirit. And you knew you needed a Savior. And you heard about Jesus, and you believed in Him. I mean, you trusted in Him. Perhaps in a way you hadn't. Even as a child, you may have made some profession of faith and walked an aisle like I did. But it wasn't until that one day, you see, or that period of time in which God was drawing in a unique way, was calling in a unique way, and you heard and believed in a unique way. And now you know you're a child of God. This calling is from God by His Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did you believe? Because God called you with that specific, special, and effective call. Do you know, I'm going to close this with one thing because my time has come to an end. Just, just turn with me, will you, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let me just close you with these words from Paul. If you're using one of our Bibles, again, page 1211, 1211 is 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling and folly to Gentiles. Hear what he's saying there. We're preaching Christ to people. We're proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repentance and faith in Christ, Jews and Gentiles. But for the vast majority, it ends up in what? This is foolishness. This is a stumbling block. I want more signs. I want more proof. I want more evidence. Or I won't believe, you see. But what's the difference to those who are what? Called. Puts the gospel out to everybody. They're calling faith and repentance. Most of them are rejecting it, but to this other group of people who are called both from Jews and Greeks. Oh, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Is that you this morning? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Is it power and wisdom to you? And listen how you should respond. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to world standards. Now, Paul's about to offend us all, so just prepare for that. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, that is God, it's because of Him, His calling, His drawing, His work that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The reformers had that glorious final sola, soli deo gloria. Our salvation is to the glory of God alone. If you have any cause to boast in your salvation. It isn't because of your choice of Jesus Christ. 
It's because God's choice of you and his calling of you and his saving work in and for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our salvation, so much we could unfold and unpack. We just pray that what has been would settle into our hearts and you would bring us all. God, I'm asking this. You would bring all of us on the same page of this. Bring us into harmony about how we've come to know you. I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.